Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 129. Psalm 129. Continuing in the psalm, the songs of ascent. I'm going to read along. Psalm 129. A song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, for the opportunity to gather, to look at your word, to sing your praises. Lord, as we look at this psalm, as we consider what it says, what the psalmist wrote, what he intended, and perhaps what he was going through. Help us to gain insight, to gain understanding, to, um, to seek how we can um, apply it to our lives. Please be with us now as we um, read your word, as we study it, and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now as we've... Um, been going through the songs of ascent and um, starting in Psalm 120 and now we're in Psalm 129. Um, as I, I've said through many of them, these are um, psalms which uh, the pilgrims, uh, uh, Jews would be singing to one another or reciting to one another as they um, made their ascent up to Jerusalem, up to the, the higher elevation um, from most places in Israel, it's uh, on a, a ridge line, and so that's why they call these psalms the song, songs of ascent. And so they would um, either sing or recite these to one another um, during those times of the feasts, uh, three particular feasts throughout the year, or um, perhaps even um, on times when they, they would just be going on their own or making a trip to Jerusalem, but... Um, particularly during the feasts. And uh, many of the, the psalms, as we have been going through, they, they show, in a sense, a part of the history of Israel, um, national history, but also a little bit maybe personal history, and just as individuals living in a sin-cursed world, um, we see a bit of their struggles, or we see some emotions, we see a lot of um, trials and even persecution in these psalms. Uh, of course, um, for many of them, it, it's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly um, when they were written or the circumstances. So, you know, as we read through the Old Testament and we study about the history of Israel, we could um, have, you know, some good guesses about uh, instances such as, you know, they're their time in Israel or um, during the, the times of 
you know, the judges or the kings or um, the Babylonian exile. And this, this psalm, I mean, just, just on the surface, we can see persecution all throughout, affliction. Um, and even one commentator says, he says, the author and occasion are not specified. However, verse 4 um, probably one of the clearest indicators. He says verse 4 indicates a release from captivity, most likely the Babylonian captivity. When he says the Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked, almost as if um, he's delivered them. But yet, though the rest of the psalm speaks of affliction, and even um, verses 5 to 8, almost as if there's still the fear of, of persecution, even if they're not experiencing it right at that time. Um, We see persecution all throughout, affliction. Um, Dr. Will Varner writes this in his commentary on Psalm 129. He says, Anti-Semitism, as old as the patriarchs and as modern as some Arabic textbooks, is the theme of this psalm. The curses pronounced are as old as the promise to Abram. Whoever curses you, I will curse. We see a, a, a bit of that all throughout Israel's history. Um, that, that term anti-Semitism um, or anti-Semitism, it, it comes from um, the, the name Shem. So um, back at, you know, uh, Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And uh, from Shem would come the line of uh, the Jews, um, and um, so that they, they trace their heritage back to Shem. And so um, it could actually be more uh, or better pronounced anti-Shemite or, you know, is anti-Semite, anti-Semitism. Um, any, anything against the Jews. And, and really, anti-Semitism, you know, in, in our day when, you know, you hear about it, the news or in the culture or, um, you know, wherever you hear that term, it, it, it's almost um, uh, said or written in the context of uh, racism or um, ethnic hatred. But anti-Semitism, it, it, it isn't just racist. It's, it's satanic. It's satanic in nature. Satan has always gone against God's people and particularly the Jews. And we see throughout their history in the Old Testament, throughout their um, secular history, we see um, the Jews hated like no other people. No other people. Um, I like what James Montgomery Boyce, he writes in his commentary concerning this uh, psalm. He says this, Whereas most nations tend to look back on what they have achieved, Israel reflects here on what she has survived, says Derek Kidner as he begins his study of the psalm. It seems a strange thing to say or do, bordering even on paranoia, but it is not strange when you think of Israel's history. The Jews are the longest enduring, distinct ethnic people on the planet. They have been slandered, hated, persecuted, expelled, pursued, and murdered throughout their long existence but they have survived intact. In fact, many are now back in their own traditional homeland of Israel. They are a brilliant, 
talented people, but survival has been their chief achievement. They've survived. <laughs> That's the one. They've survived all the things they have gone through. And this psalm kind of points towards that. And here we see within this song of ascents, it's easily broken up into two halves, um, verses 1 to 4 and verses 5 to 8. And in those two halves, we see uh, two expressions of the psalmist concerning the relationship between God's people and their enemies. And so first, in uh, verses 1 to 4, we see the psalmist's proclamation of persecution. The psalmist's proclamation of persecution and in light of his proclamation, um, it's mostly in, in the past tense. He's talking about affliction, what, what has happened to them, what has happened to him. And in light of these past persecutions, the psalmist desires that God's people would remember four things. Four things. That they, they would remember four things in light of their persecutions. And, and first, that... God's people would remember their history. They would remember where they came from and in all those instances. Verse 1, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. He personifies, in a sense, Israel. He's speaking from a first person. Uh, almost speaking about himself, but then he says, let Israel now say. And it's, it's mostly about Israel. It's about the people. Not just his own personal persecutions and afflictions, but Israel. It says, from my youth, almost um, pointing to Israel's history. That Israel would remember their history of affliction. and That, that it was a history of oppression. Well, you... Turn with me to, to Exodus chapter 1. And Exodus, you know, it, it comes obviously right after Genesis, but at the end of Genesis, um, we see um, Joseph and uh, in a sense uh, what happened to Joseph and him bringing um, his father Jacob and all his brothers down into Egypt because of the famine. It was really God's providence, um, his sovereignty that led Joseph there and all of um, Jacob and his family. This is, um, in a sense, a fulfilled prophecy that there's a prophecy to um, Abraham that, that the people, his descendants, would suffer in a land and then they would be delivered. And then, you know, you see the death of Joseph and what they, they did his bones and, and to... Um, his promise to carry his bones up out of Egypt, which they would do. And this starts, and it starts off um, with Israel. Israel is, in a sense, now a nation. It says, Exodus 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You know, they, they had uh, Joseph and Jacob, when Jacob brought 
you know, came down with his sons and, and their family. They were essentially just a large, a very large family at that point. But then they multiplied in Exodus 1 and, and the rest of Exodus is where they essentially become a nation. Even though it's in the midst of persecution. He goes on, um, Moses writing, going on in Exodus 1 and verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is his daughter, she shall live. So it's, we see just as a be, the beginning of the nation, as they, they are multiplying, they are oppressed. Oppressed with hard labors, with afflictions, with um, brutal uh, punishment if they did not produce. And, and then... We know it continues on that they, they not only make them um, make stones, but then they take a, away the straw. And then they kill, they're trying to limit their population, trying to kill the sons. This is essentially, essentially what the psalmist says in Psalm 129 and, and verse 1, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Pointing back to this the beginning of their history. All their history is a history of a oppression from living in Egypt to, to the, the, the time of the judges to the time of the kings. Um, they were oppressed. There, there, there was um, oppression from the wicked, from the Egyptians and Pharaoh and, and all the other nations, but also oppression as a result of their own wickedness. And we had seen in the time of the judges and the times of the kings and all the evil kings that would come and, and lead the nation astray into idolatry and then God would send uh, uh, other nations against them as a form of discipline. But what, what, whether it was you know, just the sense of living um, around uh, wicked nations that hated them or the sense uh, or a result of their own um, idolatry, they were oppressed. They were afflicted. Afflicted from their youth. And this is, in a sense, what the, the psalmist wants them to remember. Not the pain of the affliction, not um, the... the sorrow, but that in light of their affliction, in light of their sorrow, God sustained them. And so he first wants, he, he wants um, Israel to remember their history. And then that 
God's people would remember his providence and sustainment. Verse 2, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. And that's really, in a sense, what he wants them to remember. That as, as harsh as their afflictions were, as harsh as their oppression and their persecution, um, all the way back to the days of Egypt and uh, Pharaoh um, increasing their labors, trying to kill their own children, that in light of all this oppression, that God sustained them. He provided for them. He delivered them. And the psalmist wants them to remember this. He, he wants, also, as many psalms are, are more of a reminder to the psalmist himself. The psalmist himself is, is reminding himself of God's providence, of his sustainment, of his protection. That it was God that led them through these times, that provided for them. Even in the, the, those times in the wilderness, though they were free and, and though they sinned, God provided for them, he guided them, he directed them. So the psalmist, in light of the psalmist's proclamation of persecution, he desires that God's people would remember their history, that they would remember his providence and sustainment. Third, that they would remember the pain of persecution. Something that, you know, <laughs> most of us don't want to remember the pain of our trials, but pain is a great teacher. Experience is the greatest teacher of all, as many have said. It reminds us of, um, of the endurance, of getting through it. And as, as others would say, you know, if it, if it weren't for the bad days, I wouldn't know how good the good days are. Where we're, you know, we easily grow complacent and apathetic. They're naturally unthankful. And this is, the, the psalmist wants them to remember the pain of persecution, that they would remember the scars, the pain, and the humiliation. He says in verse 3, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. He's using, using this agricultural illustration of plowing upon my back and um, you know, we can think of a plow going across someone's back and, and you know, just, just that alone would seem horrendous, but that's not exactly what he's getting at. What he's getting at is if, you know, any, any of you have seen pictures of, um, you know, the African-American slaves or sl slaves in general who have been whipped and you see the scars on their back from the whips and, and their long lines, and they're, they're almost like furrows in a field. They, 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 those scars, they raise up, they create welts, and um, just to think about that. And, and, and not just, you know, the pain, the personal pain of someone who has been whipped, but to remember, you know, your father, your grandfather, the stories of their suffering, of your people's suffering. And, and 
not just the physical pain, but the humiliation that came along with it. The, the sense that um, there's almost no escape. But they did escape. They did escape. Not, not because of their own power or their own ingenuity, but that, that God delivered them. That God delivered them. That He sent a deliverer. And that, you know, they, they would not just remember the pain and the sorrow and the humiliation of persecution, but that, you know, and, and for us as well, for us primarily, that we would remember the persecution and suffering of our Savior. We remember that, you know, as we, you know, have the privilege of, you know, living under the new covenant and and seeing the reading the New Testament and looking backwards and and even um, seeing the suffering of Christ, we see that clearly in Psalm twenty-two and Isaiah fifty-three of his flogging. Yeah, I mean, naturally, as a Christian, you should read this verse, verse three, and and think of our Savior. Think of the welts and. and Yes, it was, it was horrible for the, the Jews to be whipped. For even, um, think of even the Apostle Paul to be flogged. But, you know, with the Roman crucifixion and, and that flagellation, the flogging, which Christ received with the cat of nine tails that, that not only left uh, or, or left scars, in a sense, or open wounds. It didn't, didn't have time to scar, but just to rip open his flesh. That left these furrows. That it's a reminder of the price that was paid to deliver us. It's a reminder that, that we deserve that. But the psalmist is He's showing us that God is faithful. Even in the midst of pain, of suffering, of sacrifice, He's faithful. He shows His faithfulness. And the psalmist wants the people to remember their history, to remember His providence and sustainment, to remember the pain of persecution, but also to remember God's vengeance, his deliverance, that as hard as the oppression got, as, as long as it was, and, and certainly um, during uh, Israel's time in Egypt, there were generations, generations that, um, in a sense, in, in the middle of that um, captivity, that they, they had no... They had no knowledge of what it was like to be free and almost no hope. But the psalmist wants, he wants the people to not only remember the pain of persecution and to remember their history, but to remember that God, he delivers. He delivers. He will redeem them. He has redeemed them. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Cords, as one commentator writes, consist of 
twisted strands of rope or line like those which, with which Samson was bound in judges or with which God challenges Job to restrain the wild ox for the purpose of plowing the soil in Job 39. These, these cords were tied to the ox, to the plow, to um, show, in, in a sense, uh, the, the oppression that the, the, the people, and especially during their time in Egypt, were as beasts of burden. And even throughout the judges, as we see in, in, in many instances in the judges where the people um, were oppressed by the Midianites or, or, or other tribes, they... they were, in a sense, like a beast of burden. They became their slaves. And the psalmist writes this in verse 4, that the Lord has cut the cords of the wicked. He has released their shackles, their bonds. He's set them free. This is what the psalmist in Psalm 129 is praying. That the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God's people, would be like grass on the housetops. It withers before it grows up. It, it, it doesn't even reach maturity. The, the reaper and the binder of sheaves does not even pay attention to it. It's worthless. It's, it's thrown away. It's driven away by the wind. It, it will be burned with unquenchable fire in the end. And lastly, the psalmist prays that their enemies, Israel's enemies, would be banished from the kingdom. Verse 8, he goes on to say, Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. We can read verse 8 of Psalm 9. It may be a little bit confusing how it's written, but he's in a sense saying, no one will say this to you. I pray that, that you will never hear this, that you will never hear someone say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. That you will never hear someone say, we bless you in the name of the Lord that you will never hear those words. And he's saying that, he's asking that their enemies would be banished from the kingdom. The enemies without those outside of Israel, but bordering Israel. And then the enemies within, the false professors, the false believers. People who may hear these sayings, who may you know, as travelers, as Jewish travelers, you know, go to and from, you know, uh, Jerusalem to worship or, or um, go to different lands or, or go on different trade routes that um, they would have this blessing, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord as they come and go, as they greet people, as they um, uh, buy and sell. And the psalmist is praying that the enemies of Israel would never hear this. They would be cut off from the kingdom. They wouldn't even hear the word of God. They wouldn't even interact with the people of God. They would be cast out completely so that Israel would prosper, so that they would not have enemies, so that they would not be persecuted. And I don't think there's anything wrong with praying that we would be blessed, that we would not have opposition, that we would not have persecution. We do pray for our enemies. We do um, 
in a sense, follow Jesus' command. But we uh, look at the whole of Scripture. And we do pray that God would uh, show his justice on earth. And there is one day in, that, that is coming in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And people, evildoers will be judged. Those who persecuted believers, if, if they have not repented, if they have not come to faith, they will be judged. We can pray along those lines. We first and foremost pray for their, their repentance but we can pray that justice may be done, that the people of God would be protected, would flourish. And this is, this is Israel's history. And in a sense, it's the church's history as well. We, we live in a, a, a time and place where we're, in a sense, in an anomaly. We're in an anomaly over the course of church history, over the course of the history of Israel and God's people. And we experience great blessing and prosperity, but for most of the history of God's people, that was not the case. And so the psalmist prays that and calls Israel to remember their history and to pray for protection. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary, he tells this story in his commentary, and I, I, I want to share this story. I, I, I like it. He, he says this. He says, near the end of the last century, talking about the, the end of the, the 1800s, he says this, Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, was having a discussion with his chaplain about the truthfulness of the Bible. The king had become skeptical and unbelieving, largely due to Voltaire, the famous French rationalist skeptic. He said to his chaplain, if your Bible is really true, it ought to be capable of very brief proof. So often when I have asked for proof of the inspiration of the Bible, I have been given some enormous volume that I have neither the time nor disposition to read. If your Bible is really from God, you should be able to demonstrate the fact simply. Forget long arguments. Give me the proof of the Bible's inspiration in a word. The chaplain replied, your majesty, it is possible for me to answer your request quite literally. I can give you the proof you ask for, for in a single word. Frederick looked at the chaplain skeptically and asked, What is this magic word that carries such a weight of proof? The chaplain answered, Israel, your majesty. Frederick, the story goes, was silent. The intent of the chaplain's argument is what Psalm 129 describes. The survival of the Jews in spite of centuries, even millennia of persecutions, thanks solely to the sovereign will and protecting presence of God, nothing else can explain the Jews' survival. And that's true. You think of Israel and how they have existed and they still exist to this day, but even more so as... Uh, even Tertullian has said, uh, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we can say the same thing is true of the church. All the times throughout the ages that wicked, wicked governments and uh, people groups and religious groups have tried to stamp out Christianity, Christianity survives. God sustains us. So even as the psalmist says, greatly 
have they afflicted me from my youth? Let Israel now say, we can say, let the church now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. And they will not prevail. Jesus said in John 16, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And uh, as Paul told Timothy, all of those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And uh, it is, there is a sense that we can live our Christian lives and, and not experience much, much persecution behind, beyond someone just um, saying something silly or stupid to us or mocking us or insulting us. But there's also a sense that Paul's words are true. That we will be persecuted. The world hates us. But we need to remember that Christ has overcome the world. And that's where our hope lies. Heavenly Father, we can easily look at the world and see it growing darker and more evil every day. We can look at Christians and missionaries around the world who are suffering. We hear of reports of Believers and pastors in prisons, in prison camps, in work camps. Believers whose families have been murdered, who've been tortured. This is our history. This is, in a sense, our legacy, our heritage. That the world hates us. Because we speak of you. And as Jesus said, because he, he testifies about it, that its works are evil, that its deeds are evil, that this is an evil, sin-cursed world. And we live and we walk amongst this world, and yet at the same time, you have called us out of the world. You have redeemed many of us who were once like that, who were evil. We may not have persecuted other believers, but... There is a sense where we, at one time, were rebelling against you. So, Lord, help us to have this subtle balance of where we do desire that even the most evil person would repent and turn from their wickedness and seek you while you may be found, that they would call upon you while you are near, that they would um, repent and believe that they would be saved. But also, we pray that you would break the teeth of the wicked. That you would expose their evil. That you would protect your people. That you would show our oppressors and our persecutors who they really are and what they're really doing. Lord, help us to live righteously in this day and age and help us to walk wisely. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.